Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Happy Monday, everyone, and welcome to the Opera Box Score podcast. I'm your host, George Cedarquist. Wherever you are, however you're listening, thanks for joining us. Whether it's our live radio show or our studio podcast, we are America's weekly program about opera. Now, I hear you saying opera ain't your thing, but get this. We tackle everything about opera and body slam it into a sports radio setup. Guess what? You get to have your say. Leave us a message on 224-218-9BOX. Again, 224-218-9269. Email us at operaboxscore at gmail.com. Tweet us at operaboxscore. We want you to be part of the conversation. Make that call. Send that email. Tweet that tweet. Tonight, my co-host, Giovanna Jacques, and I talk to Patrick Hochberger, the composer behind Synesthesia a podcast opera that went live last Friday. Now, not only will the form of the opera surprise you, but the subject matter will, too. Do not miss our exclusive interview with Patrick and this brand-new art form coming up on the podcast, but there's lots to get to first. Composer and conductor Pierre Boulez died last week at the age of 90. In our Chalk Talk segment, we tell you what you need to know about him, and we assess his impact on opera. Later in the podcast, I'll give you a complete recap of this week's opera headlines. Plus, don't miss our all-new segment called Monday Evening Quarterback, where we hand out letter grades to a recent opera performance. Let's do this. Kickoff is next after these messages. Is what I would be saying if we were live on our radio show, but on a podcast, we don't have to play awkward public service announcements from the Ad Council, and you don't have to listen to them. Sweet! Opera Box Score is next. Opera class, sports radio crass. This is Opera Box Score with George Cedarquist, Oliver Camacho, and Giovanna Jacques. Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score. Well, welcome to the podcast, everybody. Welcome to Opera Box Score. Now, you might be confused as to why we're podcasting. Here's the deal. Our radio show is every other Monday night at 9 p.m. Central on WNUR 89.3 FM Chicago. Now, Oliver Macho Camacho, uh, <laughs> one of my illustrious co-hosts, along with Giovanna Jacques. Hello, Hello. Giovanna. Hi, George. I uh, said... What if we just did a podcast on the alternate Monday nights, and that way we really could be America's only radio show podcast that is truly talking about opera every single week? And that is exactly what we have become by doing this. So you're getting this podcast. We are recording it on our usual time slot, which is uh, Monday night. It's January 11th. We want to time stamp this thing and uh other than that the format is pretty much the same as i mentioned in the intro we do have this interview coming up with patrick hockberger he's going to be live in studio it's something that we're able to do uh when we are not live and we're able to edit it and and make it work but Giovanna, i want to throw it over to you right away and get us talking about our chalk talk segment yes our chalk talk segment is about pierre boulez who died um very unfortunately at the age of 90 as you said in the intro 
Um, so, you know, you and I are, are both going to talk about, about um, Mr. Boudez, and I, I'll talk about his influence on the classical genre, and then, George, you'll take it away with, uh, with his influence in the opera world. Sounds okay. good. Yeah. Great. So, Boudez wore a lot of hats, and he, he wore three in particular, which were to be a composer, to be a writer, and to be a conductor. He also played piano, and he also performed, but not as much. Um, as a composer in the classical genre, he was incredibly inspired um, by the 12-tone technique, which, for those of you who don't know, it's a means of ensuring that all 12 notes of the chromatic scale are sounded as often as one another in a piece of music while preventing the emphasis of any note through the use of tone rows. This way, you're never in a single key, if that makes sense. Makes total <clears throat> sense. Great. So it's he, taking me back to uh, high school to music theory. theory I here. know. I was reading this and I was like, oh my gosh. Okay, Giovanna, you, concentrate. I know. If you're listening and you've done like <laughs> high school music theory, you're probably getting like the shakes. <laughs> I know. <laughs> like this awful PTSD. Yeah. Um, so so Boudez was a, was a pupil of Messiaen. And um, he really, after studying with Messiaen, tried to, tried to move away from it a little bit. And uh, he ended up coming back and really, really being a tried and true pupil of Messiaen in the sense that he looked at Schoenberg and he really tried to look at some other composers that could inspire him, but no one really had the effect on him that Messiaen did, despite the fact that Schoenberg is the one to have done the 12-tone technique, also known as the serialism. Right. Um, another thing that he's known for as a composer is controlled chants. So in a lot of contemporary music, um, some composers like to leave the actual performance up to chance. So let's say John Cage. He's got, he's got this entire vocal piece where the singers can essentially do whatever they want. And Boulez had a similar thing, but instead of giving you know, the, the singers or the musicians any, any choice of anything that they could do, he had mm-hmm. like three or four um, choices written clearly in the score okay. of either pitches, of either rhythmic notations, or of feelings. So he had an idea of how controlled he wanted the piece to be hmm. so that it wasn't just something, you know, it did have his stamp on it. Right. Which I think is really interesting. I mean, I've sung the John Cage, uh, the the piece for singers. I'm actually completely blanking on the name right now, where it's just color-coded and you kind of associate a sound to every color. And that was fun. But it was also dauntingly overwhelming. Was it? Yeah, yeah. I was like, I don't know what pink means. How do I sing pink? Yeah. You know? And he was he was obviously the first composer to in, to do this. To yeah, exactly. This exactly. Yeah. He was the first. Um, the next the next thing. Uh, so he also, as a conductor, was known for very little physical movement. Uh, he believed that too much outward energy depleted his stock of inner energy, which was much more hmm. important to him. Hmm. So he did not use a baton, but a, you know the consensus that I've read in both the New York Times and the Guardian and all of these beautiful testimonies that are coming out towards him, um, he didn't need one. He simply had the energy in his small movements. He simply had the incredible reputation, and musicians didn't need a, a huge show to be able yeah. to follow him, which I think is really cool. Um, he was also considered the best set of ears in music land today. So, for example, the New York Times said uh, this morning that there are countless stories of him detecting, for example, faulty intonation from the third oboe in a complex orchestral texture, <laughs> which to me is incredible. I mean, first, if you listen to some of the some of the pieces that that he's conducted and he's known for for really doing polished interpretations of a lot of 20th century 
composers. So let's say Debussy, Albenberg, uh, Mahler, Schoenberg, Stravinsky. And, you know, you listen to that. I can't hear the third oboe in those yeah, pieces. I, I I'm like, huh, what? No, I think what's strange about Boulez, right, is that, as you say, he started off as being this composer, this bad boy composer. He was developing new forms. But really, I think now he's very much known as a conductor. You know, yes. you talked about his conducting style. And mm -hmm. really, it became, I think, the, the biggest for him in the 1960s, right, where he right. took over. He was at um, the uh, the main orchestra in Amsterdam. Right. And then he was at the New York Phil, too. New York Philharmonic, Berlin right. Philharmonic, Cleveland Orchestra. And his time at the New York Philharmonic, what I had read in the New York Times obituary, was really not that happy. No, it wasn't. Um, it really, actually, he he um, followed Kurt Mazur mm -hmm. at the New York Philharmonic, and it kind of just went downhill from there. So it's interesting. I mean, he was respected, but it, the, the orchestra somehow just didn't live up to every single other orchestra that he had... Uh, he had conducted. And I think it seems, in reading about it, the problem that he had at the New York Philharmonic was in the programming that he was trying to do. Yeah. Some of these concerts would begin with chamber works, and then, like, the full orchestra would play exactly. something. He was also programming works that were sort of above and beyond, I think, what a lot of those New York Philharmonic audiences were expecting. Yeah, And he actually, probably ruffled some feathers the wrong way. Yeah. I, I have a funny quote that goes right in line with that, George, which is, um, he said at one point... <laughs> Hense, rubbish. Verdi, dum de dum nothing more. Shostakovich, the second or even third pressing of Mahler. All the typically outspoken views of the great musical iconoclast. Interesting, yeah. Well, if he wasn't comfortable at the New York Philharmonic, uh, he was, I think, more comfortable in the opera world. That really yeah. relates to our show, mm -hmm. of course, was that this is in the mid-60s. He was conducting his first operas in Frankfurt, Paris. That was Vatsek, which we're going to talk about later yes. on in the program. Uh, and he was also uh, conducted Parsifal, the Wagner opera at Bayreuth, which is the big Wagner festival mm -hmm. in Germany. Um, and he sort of made a name for himself, I think, doing not only Vatsek, but also Lulu by Alban Berg. Mm -hmm. And actually, I was reading, um, I was reading on, I don't remember actually which article this was, but he was saying that he does not believe that there has been any significant opera written since Lulu. Like, anything past Lulu is just... I, I can't imagine that. I mean, obviously, I don't agree with that. Yeah, I, no, me neither. But it's just crazy to think that such a, such an extraordinary man really was so traditional in that. Yeah, so what he's saying is that based because Lulu was written in the 20s, right? So yeah. in, in the 70 odd years that followed <laughs> that, that there wasn't any major opera. So I mean that uh, that in, just from an American perspective, that cuts out the works of Leonard Bernstein, yeah. Aaron Copeland. Mm -hmm. Who else who else am I forgetting here? Give, uh, you know, this is your chance gosh, listeners Ned to Roram. Yeah, exactly. You know. Um, to, to write to us and let us know, you know, who we're forgetting here, uh, if you want to pick a fight with a dead man. <laughs> um, yeah. So what else is there to, to say about Boulez before we wrap this up? I, you know, one thing that I really loved is he was so outspoken, right? And he had these very, very opinionated views on music and composers, operas, clearly. But uh, around... You know, I heard I heard when he when his death was announced, I was listening to the radio and they were interviewing a bunch of musicians that have worked with him. And actually, one of my old voice teachers worked with him, too. And they all said that despite the fact that he's known as this kind of grumbly, opinionated man, he was the nicest conductor, just hmm. always so polite yeah. and kind, never yelled. Hmm. You know, he, it was just kind of like understood if Boulez is conducting you, you're going to be as prepared as you have to be. Sure. So I thought that was really, you know, that was that was beautiful to to read. 
that he was still kind despite his worldwide success. I wonder if he was well-dressed. He was French, so yes, he was. He, of course. And um, <laughs> I mean, let's not forget, here in Chicago, he was the the maestro emeritus at, uh, at the Chicago Symphony. Yeah, CSO. Yeah, I believe. I don't know the exact years, but I, I do remember seeing that. Yeah, yeah. His name is on this huge banner that's on the back of Symphony Hall that you can mm-hmm. see from the L. Yeah. Uh, so oh, yeah, they love that. Every I'm time sure I go right b- now it's going to be even bigger. <laughs> and every time I go by there, I'm definitely going to think about, about Pierre Boulez. Yeah. So, uh, Giovanna, appreciate the information and the insight from you on Pierre Boulez. This just in, the two-minute drill. It's time for the fastest headlines in opera news. Everything you need to know from the past week in two minutes tops. After losing an artistic director, an executive director, a board chairman, London's English National Opera is now on the verge of cutting its regular chorus in order to save money. That's according to the Guardian newspaper in London, which quoted a former head of music for the BBC saying... I don't think it's going too far to argue that it would be cultural vandalism to sacrifice ENO's splendid chorus on the altar of economy. Such radical proposals should be publicly discussed in advance of their decision-taking. Maybe Parliament can put it on their list of debates after the one about whether or not to let Donald Trump into the country. The New York State Attorney's Office has raised questions in a court filing about whether a plan to reorganize New York City Opera, which went bust a few years ago, is likely to survive beyond its first few years. A group called Nyko Renaissance, backed by hedge fund Roy Niederhofer, is trying to retrieve, excuse me, revive what was once New York City's preeminent alternative to the Metropolitan Opera. They plan to stage a new production of Puccini's Tosca later this month at the Rose Theatre at Lincoln Center. When will this drama ever end? Lyric Opera of Chicago General Director Anthony Freud announced that soprano Renee Fleming, also Lyric's artistic advisor, will helm Chicago Voices, a new multi-year initiative celebrating the diverse vocal traditions of the city. Modeled after the American Voices initiative Fleming brought to Washington's Kennedy Center in 2013, Chicago Voices will partner with the Chicago Public Library, the Chicago History Museum, and Columbia College to engage and interact with city residents in various disciplines and musical genres. Chicago Voices is to span two years, culminating with several events throughout 2017. She's a busy little bee, that Renee. Kyrgyzstan has had its first opera flash mob. A typical evening shopping at Bishkek's Frunza supermarket suddenly turned into a cultural event when people who seemed to be average shoppers and store employees suddenly burst into song, regaling store patrons with a piece from Verdi's La Traviata. The singers from the Kyrgyz National Conservatory were advertising an upcoming free concert. They still had to use their super saver cards at the checkout. Opera America, the national not-for-profit service organization and leading champion for opera, has extended the contract of its president and CEO, Mark Skorka, through 2026. Skorka has led Opera America since 1990, and since Skorka's last contract renewal in 2009, Opera America has undergone unprecedented growth. In my opinion, he deserves that contract extension. The American Guild of Musical Artists has announced the death of Alan Gordon, the head of the union that represents singers, stage managers, and choristers. Gordon was also the main negotiator in the union's dealings with the Metropolitan Opera and averted a lockout in the summer of 2014. Thanks for all your great work, Gordon. He was 70. And that's the two-minute drill. You're listening to Opera Box Score with George, Oliver, and Giovanna. Who made the grade? Here's Monday evening quarterback. 
Jojo, before we get to Monday evening quarterback, was there anything that was of interest to you from the two-minute drill? Uh, yeah, lots of things. But the main thing I'll talk about is, man, Renee Fleming has her hand in a lot of honey pots. Oh, my God. Talk about a businesswoman. Yeah, really. She rivals Beyonce. She's the Beyonce of the opera world in terms of business ventures. She really is. I mean, she deserves it. Obviously, she's oh, very yeah, totally. bright and intelligent and good-looking and well-spoken. But it's like, I mean, what don't you do, Renee? Exactly. And I don't want to be catty about it, you know? And I certainly don't want to be her. Trust yeah. me. I don't want to go to, like, all those business meetings and gala lunches and that sort of thing. I don't know. That sounds fun. I would do that. For you? Well, yeah, but you're good at that sort of thing. I, like, just want to stay at home and, like, have a quiet glass of port. Well, all I can think about right now is that dinner I was telling you about. <laughs> so. All right. Well, we'll try. We'll try to get you out of here. Get you home. <laughs> no, 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 no. Don't uh, um, so uh, Monday evening quarterback is our segment where we run down a recent opera performance, and we could talk about it in a very educated and erudite sort of way. But I think it would just be a lot more fun to hand out some letter grades. Basically, uh, the show that we're talking about tonight is from the month of December. It was mm -hmm. at Lyric Opera of Chicago. The opera was Vatsek which is by Alban Berg. Uh, and this production was directed by David McVicker, uh, who is a, ooh, I'm going to say English, but I think he's actually Scottish, director. Giovanna, do you want to kick it off? Do you want to pick the first area to grade? <laughs> well, I think this is going to be really interesting because on our last show, we discovered that George and I actually had very different opinions on Votesec, which is weird because we went to see it the same night. We took an Uber home together, yeah, like to the same neighborhood. And we never <laughs> discovered that each other just didn't agree. Yeah. So let's talk about transitions, George. Well, <laughs> this is, oh my God, this is my high horse. And one of these days I'm going to end up doing a solo radio show because Javon is going to be hungover again. And <laughs> I was sick. George. So you say. Uh, and Oliver is going to be singing at another concert. That's where he is tonight. He's, okay, he's so a, he's going to be singing and I'm going to be throwing up in the toilet. That's how you see us. It'll okay. just be me talking about why good directors tackle the transitions first and bad directors leave them to last. So Vatsek is an episodic opera. It's composed of uh, 12 scenes or 14 scenes, maybe. Berg composed music for all these transitions between each of the scenes. Uh, the original story by um, Georg Büchner uh, is completely fragmented as well. Buchner was totally crazy. Mm -hmm. And all that exists of the play that later was turned into an opera is just these like scraps of paper that can basically go in any order. Barrick put those into a specific order. My point is this, is that good productions of operas are as much about how we get between the scenes as we... Uh, what as what happens in the scenes themselves. Uh, so one of the big problems, for example, is when you have huge set changes between acts, like do you bring down a curtain and turn on the lights in the auditorium just a little, little bit so that people can kind of see each other? We can sort of pretend that all that hammering and banging that's happening upstage of the curtain isn't really <laughs> happening, and we can like pretend to check our phones and read our programs. Or should the story continue on and go forward? David McVicker's solution in Vodsek was essentially a curtain 
which was about half the height of the proscenium. So it went from the floor to about halfway up and was on a very thin, tight wire cable. Mm -hmm. The curtain was then drawn across the width of the stage, which has got to be like, Oh, 60 feet, probably. The guy who was running back and forth must have some incredible legs by now. And it was operated by one person, two people. Maybe two, yeah. Not sure Hard who they were, what their Same gender costume. was. Um, and they would sort of draw this curtain across. It was lit from below with these footlights, which gave it a very sort of abstract, impressionist, gritty kind of feel. Um and then it would be drawn again, and the next scene would happen. So what the curtain was ostensibly supposed to do was to mask the scene change that was happening to take us from, like, the doctor's office to the square to Votsek's house. But in reality, what happens is we hear everything that's going on up there because this curtain only goes from the floor to halfway up the proscenium arch. If you're sitting in the balcony like I was, you can see everything that's happening Anyway, because oh, okay. you can see... Um, sorry, Javon, I wasn't sitting on the main floor like some people. <laughs> no, that's an extremely different experience, though. Um, so you can see a whole bunch of stagehands moving everybody around, a whole bunch of choristers picking their noses and that sort of thing. <laughs> and so it's like, what's the point? I, to me, that curtain, that device, added nothing to the show at all. Okay, so what grade would you give it? Uh, well, I'm going to give it a C. Okay. Uh, which I think is being pretty generous. We, when I was at Yale, we called that a gentleman's C, which was basically like you showed up and and you would pass the class yeah. without having sort of done anything. Um, I just think that there are way more interesting ways to tackle that. There's way more interesting ways to continue to tell the story. Uh, there's obviously music there. I, did Berg want us to just sit there and listen to the music? Possibly. But again, the argument is that with the technology that he had at his disposal at that time, maybe that was the most interesting thing he could think of. Sure. Now, I feel like theater has moved forward. The aesthetic has moved forward. The technology has moved forward. So mm -hmm. there needs to be things that we are doing that are much more enlightening and interesting than uh, a white curtain being dragged across the stage. So I will say, from a main floor perspective, I, I would be interested to hear what your what your opinion would be had you been sitting down there because... The, the the set was truly incredible. And, you know, I'm going to take this opportunity to give the set an A minus just because they could have done more. But it was really, and really cool. Describe it for us. So it was basically like these these broken bricks on the bottom and then this wooden kind of elevation stage above that, which served as the the floor for every scene. So that's what's like house or Marie's house, rather. Um, that's the doctor's office. That's the outdoor um, kind of garden fountain thing where um, he then dies. Mm -hmm. uh, spoiler alert. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and then you know the curtain kind of allowed that third dimension of the the stage to be removed and set up. And what was cool on the main floor is that you couldn't see what was happening behind the curtain, but you could hear the sounds. So it kind of played into this whole rustic, like very much an industrial set. And um, I, I really enjoyed the transition and I would probably give it a B just because it was it really tied in for me. But I can see how from the balcony, if you can see it, you know, it's kind of like seeing Santa Claus, the guy who's paid to see to play Santa Claus and, you know, seeing him smoke a cigarette outside with his beard down. 
afterwards. You know, you can see that that ugly other side. It was it was a little bit. Yeah. Moving on from the technical and the sort of the design of it. I mean, let, let's talk about the music a little bit. Where do you want to start with? Do you want to start with the orchestra? Do you want to start with the singers? What do you think? Let's start with the singers. Okay. What do you think? Well, I'm I'm trying to remember now in my adult brain, you know, who was singing in the show. I was most impressed by Marie. Yes. I thought she was incredible. And I forget her name, of course, uh, but she is known for doing this right. role. Yeah. Um, the music, I mean, it's it's difficult, right? You're the singer, yeah. not me, but I mean, it's it's extremely difficult to sing. That's my jam. I mean, I, I really like contemporary music, and that's that's kind of where I see... It's like it's like eating pasta with tomato sauce and eating a curry. Yes. You know, now you're just, <laughs> it's just hungry. <laughs> it's just a difference in flavors. But I I really liked I really liked her. I liked Votsek too. Um, it was a little Park and Barky. You know, he liked he liked to just stand and and sing. And so, <clears throat> what grade would you give that? Uh, the overall singers or Votsek? Votsek specifically. Um, I'd give him a B minus. Yeah, I'm gonna give him a a B plus, and I'll tell you why. I I felt that that sort of that standing around, which which you described as park and bark. I mean, I thought that was actually the intention. That here's a guy who just doesn't quite have the brain power to advocate for what he needs, to fight for what he loves, to fight for what he wants, and he's kind of he's sort of frozen in a way, and this whole world revolves around him, and he's uh, helpless and powerless to deal with it, except in the only way that he knows how, which is violence. That and so sense. you had a huge contrast between this man standing still as the world moved around him, that being contrasted with these sudden bursts of like punching, kicking. He uh, stabs his wife, Marie, at the end and then drowns her in mm -hmm. this lake. Um, at that point in the opera, Vatsek has sort of gone off the rails and yeah. he's, he's hallucinating. He's cray. Because he's been tested on medically. I mean, God, the story is just. It's out a barrel of, this of world. laughs. It's really fun. Yeah. Um, what about the orchestra? What did, what did you think about that? Sir Andrew Davis was conducting the night yes. that we were there. I will say, and I've said this since the day I moved to Chicago. Well, that's not true. Since the day after I saw my first lyric opera, the orchestra of the Lyric Opera of Chicago surpasses the CSO by leaps and bounds. Hmm. It is the best orchestra I've heard in the U.S. And where, where are you hearing that specifically? In the motion. You know, you can really... You can really tell, first of all, that they understand each other. There's a huge play in, in, um, in textures in the score, and they really bring them out. And I think that's, you know, that's largely Sir Andrew Davis. He's incredible, but you can tell that the orchestra. There's no soloist in that orchestra. It's really for a communal sound. Mm. And sometimes at the CSO, when you go, it's like, oh, uh, I heard that trumpet. You know, he he really is coming out right now. So I I just love how they they always just play with such emotion. Yeah. And such they really represent what the composer wrote in the score. I totally agree. Sir Andrew Davis, he really is a great conductor. Chicago's so lucky to have Oh my gosh. A Please don't leave. Orchestra a conductor like him and an orchestra that plays as well as as that orchestra does. Uh one group of folks that I'm gonna have to give, I think, like a C to probably a C minus is gonna be the audience. Oh yeah. They were leaving. That is they ridiculous. Were all I was like, <sighs> sit back down. I don't. I don't get because there was no intermission, right? No, no, there, no, what, no, there no, 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 no. There wasn't an intermission, but wait, no, I'm, no, there was not. It's a very short opera. Yeah. It's like an hour and fifteen minutes. Yeah. 
Um, it was, it was, it was, it, I was astounded. Yeah. I would give them even a D because it was just, oh, this music is contemporary. And you could, you could kind of tell the people that were leaving by the age group and by the look sure. of them were maybe a more traditional opera going folk. Exactly. But I was just thinking, Hey, sit down, open your ears. Yeah. Well, that's this moronic. Is that music is not contemporary anyway that's modern yeah music you want to hear contemporary music yeah i'll tell you i'll kick you in the ass and tell you where to go yeah seriously. you know um plus i mean so people were leaving during the performance and then there's only that group of folks who leave you know after the final light cue or whatever before, before the, the curtain call mm -hmm. i just i don't even get me started javana on that and that's so rude I, I I don't I don't get it. Pay your respects to the to the performers. Unbelievable. And there's you know there's some beautiful music in there. The Marie's lullaby scene was just yes. gorgeous. I was brought it was the the orchestration is absolutely beautiful. So why why not open your mind to that? I mean why not look around? Overall then George's grade on Vatsik lyric is gonna be transitions notwithstanding we're gonna go b plus i really am glad that they programmed that piece i think they did a fantastic job vocally and uh, musically in the pit i agree i say b b plus b i actually thought of b plus but just for the sake of disagreeing with you i'm gonna go with b <laughs> <laughs> always trying to pick a fight Giovanna. <laughs> you're listening to opera box score with george cedarquist oliver camacho and Giovanna Jacques. Let's go inside the huddle. Uh, tonight, Patrick Hochberger joining us. Uh, the composer, the instigator, the brains behind a project that I've certainly never heard the likes of. Uh, Giovanna, I don't know if you've ever heard. No, but I want to hear more. It's, it's incredible. A podcast opera. It's called Synesthesia. I assume I'm pronouncing that right. I pronounce it synesthesia. Synesthesia. Great. But so, I'm not a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> you're, not, you're just a composer. So, Patrick, what, what was, what was the, the genesis of the whole thing? And, and talk us through a bit about, you know, the format and the content. Well, there are really two different genesises. Um, one, before I was working on this specific podcast opera i was mm -hmm. working on the concept of a podcast opera yeah so the um the previous one that is still i would still like to do was about the wright brothers okay right on and um <laughs> right on <laughs> the dumb <laughs> and i'd been writing it um just as a straight opera um but i never finished it because it was difficult to stay motivated when i didn't have anyone lined up to perform it and you were writing sure. that as an undergrad here at northwestern um no it was after i graduated so this was uh 2013 that i started okay. um and um so then i started i pivoted a little bit and was thinking about what would it mean to write a youtube opera hmm. that's cool but even that was like um a lot more ambitious in ways that are uh, not interesting to me. Okay. Um, and would have required me to hire a director and a video editor and someone to do costumes. And um, so I mean, it sounds like a technical nightmare. Yes. Doing a YouTube yeah. opera. Yes. I actually, I, I could you explain like how a YouTube a YouTube opera would would unfold? I'm unclear. You do you mean it would be filmed for YouTube? Do you mean it would be filmed for YouTube? Okay. That would be the ends itself okay there wouldn't be something bigger than that that's okay. the goal so it wouldn't be staged like in a small opera house in chicago or something no okay um and it would um 
allow me to write scene by scene and figure out that whole scene and record it and maybe release one scene a month. Okay, cool. So like a, a web series. Yeah. Okay, I get it now. Yep. So then how does that principle apply to synesthesia? Well, I had that and I was very excited about the possibility of turning it into um, a podcast opera because mm -hmm. then all of a sudden I could, audio is what I know, right. I could control everything. Um, but I shelved that when this other thing presented itself to me, which was um, it really started with an article that I read in the Washington Post um, that I believe was titled um, Toddlers, People Are Being Shot by Toddlers on a Weekly Basis This Year. Mm -hmm. So that came out um, about three months ago. And in it, he goes into specifically um, each of these 43 instances and where they were and how old the child was and hmm. links to um, other news articles about it. Um, and I, I really got very into this before I had any intention to turn it into art. Um, and specifically the thing that r I was really interested in was, um, what the specific guns were right. that were fired in these accidents because, um, they were all accidents. They were all accidents. And only one of the 43, all of them had multiple news articles written about them. Mm -hmm. Only one of the guns was ever identified by its manufacturer and the model in these news articles. So how did you try and get all that information? Um, well, I didn't really know what I was doing at first, yeah. and so I started calling police stations and um, reading, you know, I, I do not have a background in investigative journalism. Right. Um, right. So Neither do I, don't worry. Yes. That make, I was going to say, that makes three of us. Yeah. <laughs> we have no background in, like, media. No. So it was just trial and error, and... Um, Did you get rejected a lot? Yes, Yes, and um, I still don't have all the information that I want, um, but I get something in the mail from police stations several times a week, hmm. um, and a lot of the time it's 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 very complicated because I'll contact you know this sheriff's department and then they like say no this isn't ours you have to you have to go to this person and then they send me back to the first person and it's very frustrating and very slow and each state like has bureaucracy. its own rules. Well, and yeah. I think That's clearly I mean. they're they're trying to make it difficult for you yeah. so that you give up. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But and you have a right to this information, correct? Yeah. Um, it, well, sometimes um, they say that the investigation is ongoing. Okay. So I plan to check back in with them mm -hmm. in a few months. Hmm. But otherwise, they they have to give it up. I mean, it sounds like it became a bit of an obsession for you. I would say that is okay. an appropriate word. Good, good. I didn't, I didn't want to, you know, put words in your mouth. <laughs> yeah. But you know, well, let's have a listen first. Let's yeah. let's listen to the the first episode. Is that the right yeah. word for it? And then I'll I'll give you kind of my thoughts on on what I hear, and we we can take it from there. Sounds good. January eighth, twenty fifteen, seven o five p.m. Lexington, North Carolina. Nicholas was taking a shower when he heard a noise. Got out and discovered his grandson, three years old, holding a 38 caliber handgun. He asked him to put it down, but he shot his grandfather in the neck.
My name is Patrick Hochberger. I'm a 24-year-old musician living in Chicago, and this is Synesthesia, a podcast opera about gun violence in America. Last October, Christopher Ingraham published an article in the Washington Post titled, People are getting shot by toddlers on a weekly basis this year. This article really affected me. I kept reading every book and article I could get my hands on. I grew frustrated that you never hear what guns were used in acts of gun violence. So I dug further. Even before I had any ideas about writing an opera, I began submitting Freedom of Information Act requests to police stations and sheriff's departments to get my hands on the police reports. I compiled data on the models and manufacturers of the firearms in these accidents, and I began writing music. It grew into this. Synesthesia is a 10-month-long event. One episode will be released on the one-year anniversary of each of the 43 tragedies, from January 8th to October 11th. Once subscribed, you will be notified of new episodes at precisely the minute the gun was fired 12 months earlier. Children are dying on a weekly basis, and by subscribing, you will force yourself to be cognizant of this crisis. By the end, I hope you will join me in demanding our Congress make firearms safer. Thank you for joining us on this journey. The story continues January 21st. That's beautiful. I mean, you really... That's really beautiful. You, you sound like a man obsessed, you know? I mean, you're clearly, like, very, very moved by the, the drama of it, mm -hmm. the, the pathos of it, and it's incredible that you can kind of keep it together, frankly, in, in narrating it. I mean, where did you record the narration? Uh, in my bedroom. <laughs> yeah. Doesn't sound like it. Well, so, first of all, the sound quality is great. Yeah. Uh, you must live in like a very padded, <laughs> lots of pillows in that bedroom. Um, and it's funny because, you know, when I first, when you first described the piece to me, yep. I was like, if this was a Saturday Night Live sketch about toddlers shooting their parents, it would be hilariously funny. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you put it in the hands of a young man who is very moved by it and who's a very adept composer and it becomes something totally different. I mean, there's really no precedent. Am I right for this? Who has done a podcast opera before you? I can't think of anything, anyone. I'm, I am personally stunned that podcasting is not used for distributing music. Isn't it great when you have like a really original idea and you're like, how has nobody thought of this I before? know, bow down. <laughs> <laughs> There's so many metrics online that are very, it's very difficult to understand what they actually get you. Twitter followers are uh, the vast majority of the time a means to an end, but most of the time it doesn't become any end. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. um, but subscribers to a podcast, um, I honestly had very low expectations for the number of downloads hmm. I would get, and uh, it so far has exceeded my expectations. Great, there are, that's wonderful. There are actually people listening to me, mm -hmm. and and this is um, I I also describe this as season one. Hmm. So this is really um, you know I think that I could have just as easily called my podcast 
Patrick Hochberger. Right. Um, the way that I think Kanye West should have a podcast that's just called Kanye West. Yeah. The same way that you follow him on Twitter, you follow his podcast. And yeah. every week when he releases a new track, he drops it as a podcast and it's free and automatically downloaded onto your smartphone as soon as it's available. And you get a notification on your phone as soon as it's available. Mm-hmm. That's a way better way to distribute music. That's a component of synesthesia, which is the podcast is released at the precise moment that the the gun goes off, right? Yes. Uh, and I actually just realized um, after releasing the first episode yeah. that I hadn't figured out how to deal with time zones yet. <laughs> so I have to I have to figure that out. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Man, I wouldn't have thought of that either. <laughs> it's it's really incredible though because you know our I feel like our generation especially is really into incorporating social issues into opera and into music. And this, gosh, I can't think of a more prevalent issue right now than gun control. Maybe racism or, you know, one of the plethora of sexism. Um, But it's incredible. And it's, it's beautiful that you're taking a stance in such a, not to, not to say a lazy way, but a passive way. And it's not, it's not, you're not attacking anyone. You're, you're really getting people on your side. I mean, to fight you're, this you're attacking you. the problem. Yeah, you're. Yep. T- but you're not me. attacking it. You're not violent about it. You know. No. You're you're doing it through beauty so that it can touch more people. Yeah, but- I've been volunteering for Bernie Sanders, mm-hmm. um, but I've found that I'm not as great at like canvassing, going door to door, as I am at writing music, and yeah. I have a lot more to contribute by creating art than I do going door to door. Well, let's talk about the music a little yeah. bit. Um, it's scored for what? So um, it's structured the way the way that I break it down because it's 43 episodes and it's a lot and um, I needed to break it down into smaller chunks so I could process it. Mm-hmm. Um, so act one is the five episodes for the five accidents, accidents in January. And um, each act is going to end with an episode that's basically a full piece of music. Okay. Um, so that is the string quartet um, that will be the act one finale. And then that piece of music is also being used to underscore um, little snippets of it as transitions between sections um, being modified in lots of ways. Mm-hmm. So future acts, um, the current plan, I have plans for three of the acts. Okay. One of them, I'm working with um, a singer from San Antonio. Mm-hmm. Another one, I'm working with a saxophonist from South Carolina, and these are musicians from whose hometowns are places where these accidents occurred. That's um, really cool. And I'm, I'm, you know, I, it's always very difficult to talk about this because there are aspects of it that I'm very excited about. Right. And uh-huh. It's diff- it's difficult difficult to find the language that is appropriate. Um, no, I I get that. But I'm very excited to um, explore like the sound of the local music of these places. Um, Will you be traveling to these places to kind of get that feel? I'm not sure. Um, I know that um, the singer from San Antonio, for example, she doesn't have access to recording equipment. So I would very much like to go there um, and experience the city and then record the music. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. And the- then the uh, the final one um, that I'm planning to be the final act is um, a piece for Children's Choir. Okay, for Children's right, Choir. Right, right. I saw that in your email, yeah. which is going to be quite the quite the ending note. Yeah. 
I mean, this, the scope and the scale of it is is immense. You know, I mean, we're talking about a national problem. Obviously, you're talking about using artists from all across the country. Yeah. Uh, it's being able to be distributed as a podcast. I mean, obviously, all over the world, but but certainly America as well. Um, I mean, it's it's kind of it's kind of overwhelming. Um, but you know, but the central idea was, you know, clearly moved you and, and sort of has been able to drive you from, from beginning to end. So this started three months ago, you said? Yes. Wow, that's an immensely large project to put together in three yeah. months. That's quite, that's that's impressive. Yeah. I, I thought it, maybe it was like three months ago that you finished it. <laughs> no, I mean, I so I had, you know, um, been investing in audio equipment. I had sure. been, um, I had been, you know, um, really working on my audio producing chops over okay. the previous year mm-hmm. um, and developing this idea of a podcast opera. Um, so I was really ready when the idea hit sure. to just go and had to you know push a few other things out of the way to clear space for it. But right, are you a singer at the? Uh, what what what's your instrument of choice? I I I sing more than anything else. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, moving on to to opera in general yeah. what you know what's happening right now that is exciting to you as an audience member as a composer as a singer too as well well i uh i can't start this conversation anywhere other than hamilton uh-huh. which i have not seen okay but i have listened to the soundtrack over and over and again um like you know Limuel miranda made it a musical mm-hmm. because he like that's his world. That's where he has people and connections. But very easily, he could have um, been in different circumstances and released it as a concept album. Right. And I really think of my opera as a concept album, just released one track at a time. Mm-hmm. I have you seen Hamilton, Giovanna? No, I haven't. But I'm looking forward to doing it. Have okay. you, George? No, I haven't. I but haven't. it's been qu- causing quite the stir. It's it's huge. It's yeah, great. it's I'm, incredible. I really, I really. I really do want to see it. Um, Patrick, have you seen anything in Chicago recently, you know, specifically an opera that's been either lousy or exciting? You know, it's been a little while since I went to the opera. Um, I'm more broadly interested, even more than music, which is what I've devoted my life to. Um, stories and storytelling mm-hmm. are my obsession. Yeah. So, have you gone to the moth? Um, the moth, that is that sounds familiar. The Moth is a storytelling kind of jam session that um, they're it's across the country and they host these evenings and you can either do poetry or an actual story. They have a podcast as well. And, oh yeah, um, I've seen the podcast. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it's it's really cool. And they were just in Chicago. Oh, cool. I think over the summer, and I went, and it was really really cool. Like just everyone just wants to listen to a story. Yeah, that's um, really fun. And the other uh, obsession of mine of the past year is this TV show called Mr. Robot. Okay, tell us about it. <laughs> it is Breaking Bad meets The Matrix meets Fight Club. Okay. So super dorky. <laughs> yeah. I suppose. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. It's, it's like... <laughs> it was related to um, a, a third opera that I was working on. Okay. Um, that is based on a story written by Edwin Abbott Abbott in the 1800s called Flatland. Hmm. And it's about a two-dimensional world. Um, the main character is a square and he goes around and the first half of the story is him um, just sort of laying out 
what flatland is and mm-hmm. how they go around and how they like perceive depth, which is very complicated because okay. if you can imagine actually being part of flatland, you're, you're not seeing it from up above. When you're down here, everything looks like a line segment. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Um, but they have, but the author, he's like, oh, but we have ways to judge depth. You know, there's like, sometimes there's like fog. And so then we can see, you know, how distant huh. different parts of the shape are from each other. So I was converting that into an opera. Okay. Is that on the shelf right now? It is on the shelf. Okay. I would like that to be season two or season three yeah. of Synesthesia. Yeah. So if I were a magical genie and I could give you as much success with this project, with synesthesia, that's too hard to say, I can't say, um, as, you know, as much success as yeah. you wanted, what would that look like? Where would it be? Who would it be reaching? Would it still be a podcast? It, it would still be a podcast. Um, the One of the best case scenarios is that this is something that I'm still doing multiple seasons of, you know, through my 20s, mm-hmm. and then who knows what the state of technology will be and i think it's very likely that there will be something else that makes more sense Mm -hmm. right um but i really like the idea of of having this be the place where my music goes and what i'm writing music for and people subscribing to me over time and i'm definitely aware that um i will have certain people who listen to this season who will not be interested in what i do with the wright brothers for example Mm -hmm. um and i'll lose some of that audience but but you gain others yeah Mm -hmm. cool and how do you sort of, you know, you see the art form moving ahead, you know, if we were to continue to talk about the future? Mm-hmm. A lot of what we talk about on this show is like, yeah. how are we going to change opera, specifically, I suppose, classical music in general? Um, but, you know, what are the ways in which we're going to keep this art form going? Um, how are you going to fight the good fight, do you think? I don't know. We have to uh, we have to define opera first, right? Yeah, is, well... Is... Does this count what I'm doing? Does that count as um, continuing the tradition of opera, or is it splintering well? What made off you want to What made you want to call it an opera as opposed to a musical, as opposed to yeah? An I album? mean, I had a choice of right. what I wanted to um, associate with, identify with, mm-hmm. um, and I think that I mean. So going back to the Wright brothers, that was an opera in my head. I was imagining it staged. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and so this was sort of like the most streamlined version of that, cutting out all the things that I'm not interested in. Right. Um, so that's the main reason. That makes sense. It, well, it makes sense. I mean, I think, you know, it's like this clash between form and content, yeah. basically, right? So that the the <clears throat> format of the piece is a podcast, but the the content can be operatic, whether that's... In, in scale, whether it's a story told through right. music. It's similar in a way, I think, to the Metropolitan Opera HD broadcasts, mm-hmm. which, I mean, are they not really movies? Right. Yeah. Basically, like, the format is clearly a movie, whether mm-hmm. or not they're live. I mean, you're, you're going to a movie theater, you're not watching it on television, at least for the first time around. You know, there, there are re- several camera angles. Ex- yeah, there's like multiple camera angles. <laughs> I mean, there's a huge TV truck. Some of my director friends are in the truck, you know, who, yeah. who work at the Met and who are working all that. Um, but then but the content is opera. I mean, the Pearl Fishers by Bizet is, is the, the um, 
opera we spoke about on the last show. The live broadcast is coming up this Saturday. We're going to it. We're going to be talking about it. Uh, so it's like you can kind of call the the form whatever you want, really. But yep. but it's not splitting hairs to say like, is it a concept album? Yep. Is yeah. it an opera? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that's part of the future of opera, right? Is being able yep. to open it up to several different mediums and several di- several different odd. Aud- audience yeah members and just really widening that scope of who it reaches i definitely think that calling it so the full name of it like on itunes when you're looking at podcasts the full name is synesthesia a podcast opera so i think that um you know i I wanted to put that in the name because i wanted people to think oh this this sounds different. What is this? Right. And then, and honestly, I don't entirely know what it is, and I'm discovering what it is yeah. over the course of creating it. Well, and to go back to your point, Giovanna, I mean, I think where the podcast part comes in is your ability to reach many, 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 many people all at once. Yeah. This is obviously how opera has got to be moving forward, right? Because we cannot rely on assuming that 3,300 people are all going to go to Lyric Opera of Chicago yeah. on a you know, Saturday afternoon or Wednesday night or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a beauty in that shared experience. There's no, there's no question. Mm-hmm. But like, the the form is is not going to. It's antiquated. Have a chance of continuing if it doesn't find a way to get into people's homes, whether that is visually TV and film, or whether as Patrick is suggesting, uh, you know, through your through your ear holes and and through the the download at your fingertips. Um, I listen to a, a fair number of, of podcasts, but I've only started doing that recently yeah. since I started creating the radio show. Um, and uh, I mean, just the ability to have something constantly going on in your in your ear while you can be doing something else. This is not an original idea, obviously, but um, it's amazing how effective it can be to just process all this information. Yeah. Mm-hmm. One of the things that definitely interested me, mm-hmm. especially when I made the pivot from a YouTube opera to a podcast opera, is this idea that, um, and and you talked about it when you said that like it's a big ask to have people go spend their you know Friday Saturday night going to the opera. Mm-hmm. You're competing with all those other things they could be doing. And same thing with a YouTube video. It if I made a YouTube opera, all of a sudden I'd be competing with all of the best stuff coming out of HBO or the best stuff on Netflix. Um, And with this, what I'm competing with is the best music that's out there, the best podcasts and radio that are out there. And I felt like with my skill set and what actually interests me, I'm more comfortable competing with and feel like I have a chance to get an audience competing with these things rather than imagining people and there's not even a good way to to subscribe to YouTube videos, and it's just it's not a good experience. Hmm. Mm-hmm. That's tougher. Tell us where we can find synesthesia. So, if you search my name into iTunes, if you go to uh, synfm syn dot fm, um, that's the URL. Um, that has links to everything, um, and definitely the number one thing that I want is. Um, people to subscribe to the podcast right so you know i don't care about twitter followers or any of that stuff the (laughs) the place where all the action is happening is the podcast so go subscribe to it 
It's great. great. Patrick Hockbooker, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. It was a total pleasure. Uh, we do want to hear from you about this. We love our Twitter followers. We love our posters Facebook. on the Book of Face. Um, we love our emailers. Definitely you want to be part of the conversation. Operaboxscore at gmail.com, at Operaboxscore on Twitter. Uh, we are going to come on back with our next segment. Thank you, guys. Good call, bad call on Opera Box Score. Good call, bad call is the way that we wrap up our live show. It's the way we're going to wrap up this podcast. We think about something that's happened in the past week in opera land that is good and positive and happy and delightful. That would be a good call. Bad call, somebody dying, you can pretty much fill in the blanks. Giovanna, you want to go first? Yes. So, this is kind of a preemptive thing because we'll, we're going to talk about this in a future episode, but there is an Amazon TV series called Mozart in the Jungle that touches on the lives of classical musicians, and last night at the Golden Globes, they won, as in the team of Mozart in the Jungle, won two Golden Globes, which I have, I reserve judgment on the show yet because I'm still watching it, and so far I'm not a huge fan, but I love the fact that there is attention being drawn to the lives of classical musicians. So that's a good call. That's really well put. I've got a bad call. Again, we're taping this on Monday the 11th. And today, David Bowie has passed away at the age of 69. This is actually pretty recent news coming out today. Depends when you're listening to this podcast. Of course, you might have known that for weeks or months. Um, Javon, I said to uh, you before the show began that there are very few artists out there that I would be so upset and distraught knowing that they'd passed away as David Bowie. David Bowie was really the first rock artist I ever listened to. I remember uh, when I was growing up in the 1980s, the Glass Spider Tour. I remember seeing Labyrinth, I think, in the theater. Uh, I remember Let's Dance coming out. And I remember some of the crummier albums that he did in the 80s as well. And then in the 90s, uh, when I started listening to techno, uh, the album Earthling, just, uh, and then I, it was weird. I I learned about Bowie going backwards. So all that stuff in the 80s, I went forwards a little bit into the 90s doing Earthling and like outside, and then I would go backwards and backwards and backwards in time, all the way back to the very beginning. And I cannot tell you just what a total giant of, yes, rock, but also, frankly, illustration, fashion design, mm-hmm videography, installation art. Rebel spirit. That we have lost yes, tonight in, in David Bowie. I am just at, at such a loss it is. To, to say anything other than that. That's it for our podcast. Our in-show announcer is Norm Waddell. Visit Norm on the web at voxershorts.com. That's V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S.com. The general manager of WNUR is Maddie Higgins, and our program director is Bill Scholzname. Right now you're rocking out to the song Vodka Inferno by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. However you listen to this podcast, please let us know what you think. Be sure to leave comments, reviews, and those lovely stars. Good or bad, we and others want to hear about it. And you can also contact us via email, Twitter, and Facebook, operaboxscore at gmail.com, at operaboxscore on Twitter, operaboxscore on the book of face. 
We're back live in studio on Monday, January 18 at 9 p.m. Central on WNUR 89.3 FM Chicago and WNUR.org slash pop-up. I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to keep the conversation about opera going before you go to bed tonight. Giovanna, final thought? My final thought is that here in uh, the studio, it is almost dinner time, and I am starving. 